Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we worked and the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates to debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, scams, and multi-level marketing. Welcome to our second annual month-long of holiday magic, named after the now-defunct cosmetics pyramid scheme owned by our shady friend, William Penn Patrick. I am so excited to be bringing you even more amazing content to keep you willingly informed and scam-free all season long. Please join us every Sunday and Wednesday throughout the month of December for brand new episodes filled with the interviews, topics, stories, and history that you asked for. All frauds, scams, pyramid schemes, and cults all month long. Happy holidays, hunbots and hunbros, from me, Abby, and Life After MLM. Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah, hunbots and hunbros. I hope everyone is exactly where they want to be with the ones that they want to be with today, and that no one is forced to cross their own boundaries for the sake of holiday bullshit. A piece of holiday advice from me to you. When faced with someone who wants to just argue and isn't willing to listen to any other opinion, just say, okay, and walk away. It's not worth it. Grab another appetizer and see what the relative you like is up to. Or go outside, partake in your favorite adult vice, and listen to this episode about Scientology, and be happy you aren't Tom Cruise or Danny Masterson, or literally any person stuck in this cult. There's no holiday scam this week because there's no more time left to save you. The holiday is here and you survived. You avoided scams and you kept yourself financially safe. I'm proud of you. We did it. And as another year comes to an end, aside from this one, we've only got one episode left until 2023. And just because it's the holidays, I'm going to give you a clue. It was an episode I was working on for a while back in the late spring before my entire personal life imploded, and I only had the energy to focus on the podcast. And there's a video accompaniment to this episode as well, which will be uploaded to Patreon as a holiday bonus. It's something I had a ton of fun working on, and it seemed a shame not to share it this year. So stay tuned for Wednesday. Also, since starting the Patreon, I have tried to include bonus content, what I call my director's cut, that's not in the main show that's released to the public. This episode with Mike was just too good that I didn't cut anything out. But the Patreon version does include over 10 minutes of an AMA of questions that my Patreon peeps asked Mike. Another benefit to being a member. And in that AMA, we talk about Mike's personal thoughts on Scientology under L. Ron Hubbard versus David Miscavige, what initially attracted him to the idea of Scientology, and the question that everyone wanted to know. What's going on with Scientology Fair Game podcast? If you want to get in on all of that, our tiers start at $5 and I would love to have you. Speaking of which, thank you so much to our newest members, Sarah Britton and Nina Dupont. Welcome to the family, Huns. And if you are not in a position to monetarily support right now, I get it. There are other ways to support the show. Like, share, comment, tell a friend, rate us five stars, 
Every little bit helps. And I appreciate you all so much. Happiest of holidays from mine to yours. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. Today is an extra special episode. It is our month long of holiday magic. And I wanted to share this episode before the end of the year because I think it is so, so, so important. So I would like to welcome to the show my friend, Mike Rinder. Hi, how are you? I'm good, Roberta. How are you? I'm doing great. You have had an amazing year. Uh, yes, it has been pretty amazing. A lot of things have happened and yeah, it's been good. Yeah. I'm so excited to talk to you. Your book came out a billion years. I got it as soon as I possibly could. Uh, I would recommend everybody to also listen to the audio because you actually narrate it, which I think is so cool. I love when the authors narrate their stuff because one, you have this incredibly dry sense of humor that comes across beautifully. I laughed so many times. I think there's probably places <laughs> where people are going, you know, don't even realize the comedy in it. But like, I saw it, I felt it, I got it, I loved it. The book is incredible. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your time in Scientology. Uh, I know there's a lot of people that listen to the show who are very, very like fascinated with cults. And we talk about that so much. You are the yeah. first person I have had from the Church of Scientology to come on and share. Um Wow. I'm excited that it's you. I know, right? <laughs> I'm I'm honored. Yeah, I'm I'm really, really excited about this. So, first of all, your book is called A Billion Years. I think most people who follow Scientology understand what that means. But for anybody who is, you know, going like, oh, I know Scientology, you know, Tom Cruise couch jumping, and that's really the the most that they know. Like, yeah. talk us through what a billion years is and why you named your book that. A billion years is in reference to the contract that members of the C organization sign. And the C organization is the sort of inner elite core of Scientology, the people who dedicate their entire lives, well, really not just their entire lives, their entire eternity in service of Scientology uh, to achieve the aims of Scientology. And in order to become a part of the C organization, that inner core elite, the people that occupy the, the highest positions in the hierarchy of Scientology, you must be a member of the C organization. And the contract that you sign when you sign up for the C organization is a billion year contract. That's billion with a B. And it is obviously not a legally enforceable contract, but it is a contract that signifies your dedication and your uh, willingness to basically give up your life to serve Scientology. And that is what I did when I was 18. And I remained in the C organization until I was 52. Uh, your story is so incredible. And we will definitely get into that. But the billion years is like because Scientologists believe that you come back, that your soul comes back, right? Yep. Scientologists believe that you are an immortal spiritual being who occupies a body and has a mind which controls the body. And that as an eternal spiritual being, you live uh, many, many, many lifetimes and go on into the future for 
the unforeseen future and have been in the past for the foreseen past. And it is um, a sort of a fundamental concept in Scientology that you live many different lifetimes. So how old were you when you effectively joined Scientology? Well, I joined Scientology when I was like five or six because my parents got involved. We lived in Australia and they, uh, our next door neighbor somehow got involved or went to hear a lecture from L. Ron Hubbard and came back home and told my parents and they got interested and then they sort of got hooked. And so I then was really raised a Scientologist. In your book, you talk about growing up in Australia and being one of very few Scientologists and being called the Scientology kids. How many kids in Adelaide were involved? Uh, maybe a dozen. It was very, very small. Honestly, Roberta, it's probably smaller today than it was then, but it was a very small number of people. And we, these were the, like the families who had gotten involved in Scientology that had children. And there was one family that had, you know, four boys and then me and my brother and sister and another family had three boys and a girl. And then there was like one other family. And that was like, that was like, like the hardcore central child Scientology operation in Adelaide, Australia in the, uh, you know, early mid 60s. So at some point, your family decides to leave Australia and move. And how old were you when that happened? Well, we left Australia and moved to England twice when I was a kid. Uh, that was because my parents went to England to the home of L. Ron Hubbard at the time, which is called St. Hill Manor in East Grinstead, uh, south of London. Uh, the first time, uh, I think I was 10 or 11, I was, uh, you know, pretty young, 12, I guess it was 1967. So... Uh, we went to England and lived there for, I don't know, it was about nine months, I think, that time. And then again, when I was 14 or 15, we went there and lived there for a year. And I went to school in, in the town that we lived in near East Grinstead both times. And that was sort of my, the beginning of my love affair with England and London, which are two of my very favorite places to be. I've never been, and it is definitely on my bucket list. Yeah, I love it there. I, I really do. It's, uh, I feel very at home, and I, I find um, things to just be very comfortable in England. So I enjoy it a great deal. So let's talk about you deciding to join the Sea Org and take your Scientology <clears throat> practice a lot more devoted. Uh, what was sort of like the catalyst for you to decide to do that? Well, it was sort of a preordained destiny to some extent, Roberta, like a dedicated Scientologist family. Uh, I was the oldest son. It, it was almost like the Catholic Church giving their, their children to the priesthood. I was you know, the greatest thing that you could do as a Scientologist was uh, go and work with L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, the guru, the master, the, the king. And I had the opportunity joining the C organization when I did to be sent to work or 
actually go to study originally where he was located. And at that time, he had fled England and was operating on a ship in the Mediterranean called the Apollo. Uh, he had decided that it was safer for him to operate outside of the jurisdiction of any government in international waters. Um, obviously, you have to go into ports, but you could always, you know, sail out into international waters where nobody could really get at you. And so I, shortly after I graduated high school and I turned 18, I signed the billion-year contract and went off first to England and then to Lisbon in Portugal, which is where Hubbard was with his ship at the time. It's it's really interesting. And you really describe this really well in your book about deciding to sign up and what you wanted to do and sort of how like nothing was really what you expected. <laughs> Everything that you had been promised was like, oh, well, no, plans have changed. That's not where you're going anymore. That's not what you'll be doing. Was that a common theme throughout your entire life in Scientology? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you learn at a very early age, Roberta, in the C organization or at a very early point in the C organization that you are literally a cog in the machine, that your personal wishes, your personal well-being, your comfort, the food you eat, how, how like where you're being assigned, what job you're going to do has nothing to do with your wishes. It is entirely at the discretion of the organization. And it, this, is, um, this is a lesson that every SEORG member learns very quickly. And it is a lesson that continues to be taught uh, until you finally decide you're going to escape from the C organization. It, it, it's the gift that keeps on giving. The C organization is the ultimate taskmaster, perhaps slave master is a better word for it, that treats its, its people as coins. In fact, that's a term that is used in Scientology. You're a coin. You can be traded for something. You can be used to gain something from someone else. And it is, a, it is a, an existence that breeds a, a mindset that you can basically tolerate any shit because there is this greater purpose and the organization has a a this huge job of saving all of mankind and so your little problems and your discomforts and your upsets and whatever may be going on in your life are all unimportant when compared to this big picture of the entirety of planet Earth being salvaged from this terrible fate that is headed for everybody. And that makes for a very abusive organization, an organization that can get away with abusing people because everybody within it doesn't think that the abuse is that significant or important. And of course, then there is the other great uh, stroke of genius of Hubbard, which is to say that anything that happens to you that you find to be uh, objectionable or it hurts you or it upsets you or whatever, 
only happens to you because you have done something similar yourself. And the Scientology vernacular for this is, what did you do to pull it in? So if you get hit by a car, what did you do to pull it in? Who have you run over with a car? And this is where past lives become very convenient because if you haven't run over anybody in a, in a car in this lifetime because you don't even have a driver's license, you can start looking back to earlier lifetimes to figure out when you ran over someone with your horse and carriage or your chariot or whatever. And that will be the thing that will relieve you now in Scientology theory from the need to be run over by a car. So it solves the actual underlying problem per se. But what this does in an organization like the C organization or just generally in Scientology is you can abuse people left, right, and center. And yes. the answer to it is, what did you do to pull it in? <laughs> and it's pretty incredible because this truly is what Scientologists believe. I write about it in the book extensively how many times these absolutely outrageous things happen. And I start looking at myself going, what did I do to, to pull this in? What did I do to cause this to happen to me? It's so bad. And like, oh my God. And, right. you know, even, even down to the point of Hubbard saying, well, you know, this guy's got, uh, this is another, another one that, that happens in Scientology. He's got evil purposes and hidden counter intentions. I was such a zealot, believer in all things that L. Ron Hubbard said that I went, I guess he knows more than I do. I just have to find what is inside my soul that is so evil and bad that it has come to the attention of, you know, the great L. Ron Hubbard. And I've got to use his e-meter and auditing, you know, Scientology counseling principles to uncover this hidden, horrible evilness that lurks within. That's how Scientologists look at the world, and that's how Scientologists look at themselves, and that is why Scientology is able to get away with so much abuse. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That is just pure wow. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like Scientology is saying the quiet part out loud. Scientology right. is like allowing space for abuse. They are allowing this to happen. And then when you're like, hey, this seems abusive, they're like, well, you probably did it to yourself. And you're right. like, but I haven't. And you're like, well, then probably like 500 years ago, you did it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's so it's just absolutely wild it's just wild yeah it's it's completely fucking nuts is what it is it's it is victim shaming to the ultimate level where there is nothing that can't be explained or justified or excused that happens within scientology and that's the culture of scientology i mean it's exactly what MLMs do. I mean, obviously a cult, cult's a cult's a cult, right? But it's like, if anything good happens to you, then it's all because of Scientology. If yeah. you're jumping on a couch on Oprah's TV show, it's because Scientology helped you get there. If you're starring right. in the movie, it's because 
Scientology helped you get there. If you're getting all these breakthroughs, it's because Scientology helped you get there. But if something bad happens to you, if you get run over, if you get a hangnail, if you forget to pay a bill, it's your fault. And it's because something you did, like, is coming back. It is the most odd explanation of karma that I've, like, ever heard in my entire life. It's very formalized karma. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet, and they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the Flow Knit High Rise Boyfriend Jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claim standard approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash MLM for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. Like everything in Scientology, it is considered public 
called everything in Scientology, all of his teachings, technology. Like it is a, um, a proven scientific fact and things are provenly scientific in Scientology. That's really, of course, not even close to being true. But in the Scientology world, that is what you that is what you're expected to believe and what everybody believes, that this is a 100% standardized method of dealing with life. And if you do it 100% standardly and just the way that L. Ron Hubbard said to do it, you will get 100% results. And so everything in Scientology is, is a very black and white proposition. It's not like there is, um, it's full of parables and things. It is words that are supposed to be understood and literally applied. So when Hubbard says, you know, for something bad to happen to you, you have to have done something similar yourself in an earlier time, that is a 100% hardbound rule. There's no exceptions. There's no, well, yeah, except if blah, blah, blah. Nope, it's just that is it. And you and Scientologists keep hammering away until they find it. Because Hubbard said that was the case. So if you can't find it to begin with, you just got to keep looking and you got to keep going and you got to keep searching and you got to keep, you know, regurgitating your innermost thoughts and feelings and whatever until you come up with what it was that you did. And this is, this is how all of Scientology is structured. It is, um, you know, I often say, Roberta, that, Religions have, you know, all, all big religions have fundamentalist sort of arms to them. They have the, the people who are so out there, they are black and white. This is, I will, you know, strap a bomb to myself and, and die for the cause. All of Scientology is fundamentalist. You have to be a 100% 100% died in the wool Scientologist to be a Scientologist. If you're not that, you're not a Scientologist. So it is essentially uh, an entirely fundamentalist organization or group. And that is what makes it a bit of a monster. Yeah. Because everybody is like in lockstep. And as soon as you have everybody in lockstep in anything, whether it's a political party or whether it's a religion whether it's a mlm whatever you've got problems being generated absolutely i just i'm i'm thinking about sort of that entire i'm speechless because what you're saying like i completely agree i'm seeing all of the parallels within mlm and all of the other cults that i talk about in fact when I was researching Nexium, I got really bad Scientology vibes with how oh. obsessed and controlling. And it's interesting because in MLM, we get that same phenomenon. Like you're all in or you're not. And again, cult, us versus them, black, white. It, it is this all in. So 
you're telling me that if you're a Scientologist, you have to be all in to be considered a true Scientologist. So what about those fringe Scientologists that are, you know, not in the Sea Org or maybe just show up, you know, come to a, a I don't, is it a service? What, what about those people? Auditing sessions? What about people who are just Scientology hobbyists? Are they not considered true Scientologists by the church? Well, yeah, that's where you get into this sort of, this sort of weird area. It, it, it is considered in Scientology that if you're a, a fringe Scientologist, you're just not really a Scientologist. If you're, um, uh, you know, what, what you call a fringe Scientologist, you're not really considered to be a Scientologist. There is a derogatory term that Hubbard called uh, those sort of people, and he said they were dilettantes. They are dabblers. And he said that he would rather have you dead than incapable as a Scientologist. It is taken very seriously, the idea that you must be completely dedicated. And there are people, of course, who hang out on the fringes, but mostly they hang out on the fringes because they don't consider themselves Scientologists anymore, but they don't want to say that. Because if they say that, then their family will disconnect from them, or they'll lose their job, or they're afraid Scientology will start harassing them, or whatever. So they just sort of quietly fester in the corner and don't say anything and don't do anything and hope that nobody notices. So those people exist. And in fact, that population of the you know Scientology universe has continued to grow over the last couple of decades. And there is even a term that these people use for themselves now, and they say they're under the radar. They are staying off anybody's uh, radar so that they are getting themselves into trouble, but they're not participating in Scientology anymore and don't even consider themselves Scientologists. So an interesting thing that happened to Abby and I, my daughter, over the spring is we were down in downtown San Diego hanging out. It was opening day of Padres um, at Petco, and there were so many people downtown. There was a big street fair, and we turned the corner, and there are two men on the corner handing out pamphlets, and they hand one to Abby, and they hand one to me, and we walk away. I say, thank you, and we walk away, and as we get about halfway down the block, I look down, and they are scientology recruitment pamphlets with a 200 question personality test so abby and i came home and we read the questions to each other and my 11 year old who was 10 at the time was like that's a weird question to ask people (laughs) why are they asking this question and she even recognized she's like didn't we already ask that in a different way like she was seeing all of it i mean I would really hope so. But I mean, it was so obnoxiously obvious to anybody who isn't vulnerable, who isn't looking for something bigger. It it was almost offensive how culty and obvious it was. Right. And, you know, that thing, that personality test is what they call it, the free personality test. It was just invented by this Scientologist guy. It's not, it's got, it's got no uh, real value whatsoever. What happens is when you fill it out, they turn it into a graph and then they sit there with this graph and they say, well, you know, 
you have difficulties with your responsibility level or you have problems with communication or you have problems with, uh, you know, there are these traits, they call them. And of course, no matter how you answer all those questions, you're always going to have some areas that are problematic that with great fanfare and drama, they point out to you, oh my God, oh my God, you must be, your life must be, basically unbearable because you've got this going on and that going on. You may not even be aware of it, but the good news, you are in the right place because Scientology can handle that. And here is a little course that we will sell you for 50 or a hundred dollars or however much they charge. I don't even know to get you started on your road to full spiritual freedom. And this is a methodology that has been used since that thing was invented in the 1960s um, to get new people attracted to Scientology. Well, like it, one of the questions was like your opinions on corporal punishment on children. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, like I said, it's also it's very much 60s style and the questions are very 60s and there is a lot of Scientology that's 50s and 60s when Hubbard was writing all his shit and they can't change it because Hubbard's dead so they can't do anything different they have to stick with the old Hubbard stuff so he has got all sorts of racist statements and misogynistic statements and things that are just like, oh my God, you can't believe that he actually said that. And yep, they still have it and they still use it because nobody's allowed to change it. Wow. And that's a really great segue into talking about the next topic. So uh, L. Ron Hubbard dies. Mm -hmm. It's like, what is going on? It was this very, very mysterious thing. And while that was happening, uh, David Miscavige was getting closer and closer and closer to the inner circle. And I mean, spoilers sort of kind of, um, you know, bond villain to the whole thing and is now the head of Scientology. So let's talk about like what that change looked like and like how that felt because you were close, you know, Sea Org, you were close with L. Ron Hubbard and you're not the biggest fan of David. So let's talk about that. You know what Okay. Um, well, David Miscavige was, I mean, I say throughout the book that he is a sociopath. And I came to learn that really after I left, uh, reading a wonderful book by this professor from Harvard called Martha Stelt called The Sociopath Next Door. And David Miscavige is, he is a sociopath. He is also the product of L. Ron Hubbard. David Miscavige was, like me, raised uh, from childhood as a Scientologist, joined the Sea Org when he was 16. As a matter of fact, as soon as he could leave school, he rose through the ranks to a position of one of the top people in the world of L. Ron Hubbard. He ran this organization called Author Services, Inc., a for-profit company that was created to funnel money to L. Ron Hubbard and to act as a go-between between Hubbard and the rest of the world when Hubbard was in hiding off, you know, in his motorhome traveling around California. 
when Hubbard became very ill, and he was ill and in, in bad health for some time before he eventually died, there were only three people or four people that were with him at that time. There were the two, um, the brokers, uh, Pat and Annie Broker, and this other guy called Sarge, Steve Sarge Falth, who was like the caretaker security slash handyman slash gopher. And then uh, in the final days, um, Hubbard's doctor, a Scientologist, Gene Denk. And then in the very last two days of his life, a sealed member from the called the Senior Case Supervisor International, Ray Midoff, who was called to this ranch where Hubbard was living. Well, he was living in his motorhome on his ranch in the barn to deliver Scientology auditing to him because he was really in a mess. And well, hold on. So like L. Ron Hubbard has houses everywhere and he's living in a motorhome in a barn. Yeah. Yep. He, he, um, well, first of all, you know, this, there's a lot of aspects to this, Roberta. First of all, Hubbard was paranoid, allergic or obsessed with smells and dust and dirt. So he had bought this this ranch property outside of San Luis Obispo in California. The entire place was being gutted to get rid of the contaminations inside the house. So he couldn't live in the house. So the motorhome that he had been traveling around on had been, you know, specially cleaned and had all sorts of extra vents and filters and whatever put in it. So he parked the motorhome in the barn of the ranch. And while the ranch house was being repaired or ripped apart, whichever, whatever, he was living in the motorhome in the barn because it was insane the level of sensitivity he claimed to have to dust and smells. He had his clothes rinsed by hand seven times to make sure that they didn't smell. Wow. And, and this is the guy that invented what he called the asthma allergy rundown, which was an auditing procedure to solve people who had allergies, to solve the problem of people who had allergies. <laughs> was Let's like, talk about what you're allergic to and what. <laughs> like yeah. Okay. What did, you, what did you do to pull that in? In any Why event, is ragweed so potent to you? What did you do 500 years ago to ragweed? Yep, exactly. You wiped out a whole field of it. So Hubbard finally expires in his motorhome. And he had had a number of strokes. He had pancreatitis. He was on uh, various pain-killing drugs. He was a, sort of a dribbling, drooling fool by that point. You know, I talk about this in the book and and the stories recounted by Sarge, who was there at the time, one of the only people. David Miscavige was not there with L. Ron Hubbard. Once Hubbard died, David Miscavige and the lawyers were called to San Luis Obispo from L.A., and they went up there to take care of the coroner and the police, and because you have to report a dead body, you can't really just bury it in the backyard and hope that it all goes away and nobody notices. So then Miscavige and Pat Broker, who was the husband of Annie Broker, and the lawyer who was, had been taken up there, uh, a guy by the name of Earl Cooley, 
who was a very prominent criminal defense lawyer and on the board of trustees of Boston University and a very well-respected guy who by this time had become a Scientologist, went to Los Angeles and gathered together all the Scientologists in the area to make the announcement about the death of L. Ron Hubbard. And the spin they put on it was absolute genius. Because obviously, if they had told the Scientology world and Scientologists that L. Ron Hubbard had died a bedraggled mess, spouting nuts statements with two strokes and pancreatitis and pumped full of painkilling drugs, that wouldn't have exactly matched the idea of what Hubbard said from the very first book of Dianetics and Scientology, Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, which is still the very first book that Scientology pushes on anyone. And in that book, it says, if you do what I say, you will be a perfect human being with a perfect memory and you will, all of your physical and mental ailments will have been resolved you will you won't even get a cold anymore let alone arthritis bursitis cancer i mean the list is sort of endless and then of course subsequently when that didn't happen and nobody was able to achieve those things with dianetics he then went on to develop scientology which promised now to accomplish what had not been accomplished in dianetics and there are uh, you know now numerous levels that go on you know, sort of in a step-by-step process of you do this and then you do this and pay us for this and then pay us for that and then pay us for this. And then ultimately when you get all the way to the top, then the things that I said to you were going to happen from Dianetics, they will probably now be able to happen up here when you get all the way to the top. But there's actually a few more coming. So if you still don't have it and you still haven't achieved that, well, there's more to come at some point in the future. But what Miscavige and Pat Broca did was they stood on stage and said to the Scientology world that L. Ron Hubbard has, you know, effectively, he no longer requires a body, that he has moved on to a higher plane. And in fact, a body was encumbering him from continuing his research into spiritual freedom and the the true nature of man and blah, blah, blah. So he discarded his body that he had been using for 74 years, 11 months and 12 days, 14 hours and six seconds uh, in this lifetime. And he has moved on to continue his research. He wanted you all to know this was a, a causative thing that he, a step that he took and He did it for you. Don't be sad because he's like the great man has gone on to do even greater things.
Miscavige on the stage for the first time with Scientologists and obviously because he was the one that was making this announcement. He was the guy. He was the go-to guy. Of course, for Scientologists, if they had actually stopped and thought for a minute, myself included, I, you know, I don't count myself out of this insanity, they would have gone, wait a minute. You know, L. Ron Hubbard wrote about everything. L. Ron Hubbard did these things he called Ron's journals where he, oh, my dear friends, I'm, I'm recording this journal today to update you on what's going on and what I'm doing and I've been doing this and this has happened and blah, blah, blah. And this was like Hubbard sent either written or verbal recorded messages to Scientologists from the day he started uh, the first organization until, well, the day he died. All except one thing. He never, in his, in his ultimate wisdom and, and grand scheme of moving off his, this mortal coil to continue his research now that he no longer needed a body, he forgot to write or say anything about what was supposed to happen to Scientology. Who was supposed to be in charge? There wasn't anything. Nothing. Not a word. Not a peep. Nothing from the, from the great man. Luckily for David Miscavige, when you make everything up, you can just make more shit up. Exactly. So it, it was the perfect it was the perfect chance. And Miscavige stepped into that vacuum and figured out how to compromise and get rid of Pat and Annie Broker and anybody loyal to them and basically assumed control of Scientology and became what he calls himself now the chairman of the board. And <laughs> the chairman of the board, uh, even though he doesn't sit on the board because he doesn't want to be on the board because he doesn't want anybody serving him with lawsuits. So he is the chairman of the board, uh, Captain David Miscavige, or otherwise known as the ecclesiastical leader of the Scientology religion. And that's his sort of legal PR statement position to the Scientologists of the world, he is COB. He is the man, and he is the replacement for L. Ron Hubbard, who is carrying out the wishes that L. Ron Hubbard had for what should be done with Scientology. The problem is he's doing a really shitty job of it, and Scientology is shriveling and... You know, I just put a post on my blog today about, you know, incredibly shrinking world of Scientology, because while they like to, to say we're the fastest growing new religion on earth and we've got tens of millions of members and we're look at all these churches we're opening and blah, blah, blah. It's all bullshit. And this is the actual state of Scientology today, which is. In this information age where information is poison to cults, they are dying. And the Google has killed Scientology. I love to hear that. Google is killing all of these organizations. People are actually like when they feel that little bit of cognitive dissonance, they're like, well, I guess I could just look. It's not like anybody's going to know I looked. I could just right. look real quick. 
Yep, that's exactly right. And and you know, if you Google Scientology, it's not pretty. <laughs> it, <laughs> no, is, it's not. it is definitely not pretty. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. Another one of my favorite things about your book, and this kind of goes into Googling Scientology and finding out it's not pretty, is that I've read other Scientologist accounts and that I am uh, a friend in, I haven't seen her in a long time, but I did message her recently, but I am a friend of Jenna and Dallas and their family. And so I read her book and your name comes up so much because you guys are friends and Jenna comes up in your book. And so that was one of the things because I was like, oh my gosh, this is the missing piece. This is the puzzle piece that wasn't in Jenna's book and isn't in other Scientology books because you are mentioned in most, if not all Scientology books, because you were like, you know, bad dude, number one, right next to the COB. And so the fact that now you are coming out and you are corroborating all of these other stories all of these other books, you are filling in all the blank spots and the questions. I was just like, this is amazing. This is amazing. <laughs> You're the well, key master. Like you I've, filled I've, in all the holes. <laughs> well, I try. You know, it, it's funny. A couple, a, One person who, who I won't mention his name, but someone that I admire greatly and has been a, a friend of mine now for some time, a former enemy of mine for a long time, said after he read the book, he said, Holy tamale, I had no idea. You are the Forrest Gump of Scientology. <laughs> he said, I take I, I mean that entirely as a compliment. I I it's just you were involved in everything. It's like it's kind of crazy. And it is a bit crazy how many things um I was involved with. It just even even just the very fact of working both with L. Ron Hubbard and with David Miscavige, you know, there's not too many people who have had both experiences with sort of in any depth. And so that's that's kind of an interesting thing about my, my account is my proximity to both the leaders of Scientology. Yeah. And then quick question on that. I mean, a cult is a cult, but what did you feel was more culty? Scientology under LRH or Scientology under COB? Um, honestly, Roberta, it's the same thing because the the cult of Scientology is created by L. Ron Hubbard and the the policies, patterns, and practices of Scientology are dictated by the policies, patterns, and practices of L. Ron Hubbard, 100%. On the other hand, I will say, and a few people have asked me this now, well, if L. Ron Hubbard was still alive, would you still be in the C organization? And unfortunately, my answer is, I think I probably would. And the reason for that is that these sadism of David Miscavige or the sociopathy of David Miscavige was what ultimately kind of prompted me or almost forced me to go, okay, this is it. Nothing could be worse than this. I'm out of here and then make my escape. And for the first 
you know, few years, I still, you know, considered myself a Scientologist. I still believed that L. Ron Hubbard had come up with the answers to, you know, the problems that have been plaguing man since time immemorial. And that the, the issue was simply David Miscavige and the, the way that he was going about controlling the organization. It, it, if it had not been for the, the lunatic stuff that Miscavige had done, I'm not sure that I would have ever had the, the motivation to leave because there are all these other factors that pull so strongly on you, your, your children, your family, your commitment, your, like, I, I gave my word, I signed a billion-year contract, uh, what about my eternity, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so, yes, I think that Scientology is more cult now, but it's not really that much different. What, what is different about Scientology is, as I said, the internet and the amount of information that has been made available, and therefore that has forced them to become more desperate and more determined. In the world of cults, when the walls start closing in, many of the people don't just go, okay, the game's up. They go, we have to fight harder. And that's what is happening in Scientology. They are sort of seeing the writing on the wall and they are fighting harder and they are, they are becoming more unhinged and more desperate and more crazy and more um, unbelievable to the outside world. But in, in, inside the bubble of Scientology, they are believing that they are like they are fighting the good fight and they're fighting harder than they ever have and they must keep it up and they can't ever stop. So to that extent, the sort of, um, I'm not quite sure what the right word for it is, but the conviction is, is in some ways stronger. And the stronger the conviction, the more cult-like it is. So yeah. I guess that, you know, Though I answered you to begin with saying, well, it's really the same thing because it's all the policies. I think as it's not necessarily just a reflection of Miscavige. I think it's a reflection of the decline of the influence and, and power of Scientology. And so therefore, they're becoming more desperate and being more desperate, they're more cult-like. I could totally uh, understand that. And I, I agree, like the abuse has gotten so much worse that it really drags everything down. And again, with your cognitive dissonance and all of the sunk costs that you put into this, including your time and your money, like, what do you do? Admit right. that it's all a big, huge scam and you've, you've spent millions of dollars or do you double down and and stick with it and, and allow it to get even worse and cultier and, and spiral down and keep that circle even tighter? Yep. Well, that's that's the world of, of Tom Cruise. You know, he's like the big poster child and everybody kind of asks that question. Well, does he know about the abuses? Does he know what's going on? How can he continue? Just like you said, coming out and admitting that you have been a complete fool and given a lot of time and money and effort and sunk a lot of costs into something and then saying, ah, 
guess it wasn't really quite what I thought it was or what I promoted to the entire world, that takes, that takes some cojones. It really does. It's like much easier to just go on and keep pretending like everything's great and it's all cool and fine. And that's been the Tom Cruise route of late. He doesn't talk about Scientology anymore, but he doesn't diss it. He just sort of quietly doesn't make mention of it and requires that reporters who are going to be on press junkets for movies do not ask about Scientology. That well, that's too, telling. That too is a very telling indicator of the state of Scientology today. It's, like I said, the incredible shrinking world of Scientology. And it is. Yeah. And, you know, sort of to pivot, and we'll talk just very briefly, but the Danny Masterson trial and everything that's going on with that. And like, I get a lot of people that are asking me about it. And I get a lot of people that are like, well, like, why? Like, what's going on? And just like with Scientology, it's part, part of it is keeping your lips tight and not reporting things, not mentioning things. And I mean, is that sort of what's happening here? Is, is, is that why he's getting away with this? Well, yes, because I think that when you, you, you know, you realize that the rapes that what he was being charged with happened in the early 2000s. The reason that they were not reported and the reason that it took so long for anything to happen is because of the policies of Scientology. That's very well documented, even though Scientology keeps coming out there. Well, we don't have any policies that, that say that you can't report things to law enforcement. Oh, the fuck they don't. They absolutely do. And I've written about it many times. But when you are looking at putting someone in prison for the rest of their, basically the rest of their life, and the standard that you are required to meet in order to convict someone of a crime like that or any crime is beyond a reasonable doubt, it is pretty easy to create doubt that something that happened 20, 19, 18 years ago is that there can be no doubt that that's exactly what happened. And so that's a that's a big factor in the prosecution of a criminal case like this is how long ago it was and the sort of natural inclination that people have of well if this was really so bad why didn't you do or say something about it at the time and you can't understand why a person who is in the position that those women were in, how they would react and how they would view things and what they consider the right actions and the things to do would be, unless you have been in a circumstance like that yourself. It's really easy for people who have never been caught in, in a mind control organization to blow it off and go, ha, never happened. That's not how I would have reacted. That's not what I would have done. That's just, that's unbelievable. And that is a big part of the very high hurdle that has to be overcome in order to get someone like Danny Masterson found guilty of allegations of rape that happened 20 years ago. 
It is also why I spent so much time in my book trying to explain my thought processes and what was going on and what was I thinking at the time. Because I know people read or, or hear about experiences and go, ah, never would have happened to me. If that guy had walked up and started kicking and punching me, I would just have sucked him right back. And I would have been out of there. I would have like, I wouldn't stand for that shit and blah, blah, blah. It's the, you know, the boiling the frog story of you become more and more and more immersed in what becomes an increasingly insane Alice in Wonderland world that seems perfectly normal and is all explained and all the people around you think the, the Mad Hatter is just a perfectly normal guy and so is the rabbit and so is the crazy queen and Everything is just all, that's how it's supposed to be because they're all living in that world. They're all occupying that world inside that bubble. And for people outside the bubble to pass judgment on that is unfortunate. If I had to, to say what my thought about the Masterson uh, hung jury is, is it is my belief that a jury of peers in that case would have to be ex-cult members. Yeah. If you had a jury of ex-cult members, which all of those, Jenny Masterson is a, still a cult member, and the victims are ex-cult members. If you had a, a jury of ex-cult or people who had studied cults or understood cults, mind control, undue influence, and all of those things, then you would have a jury that would be able to be truly determinative of who's telling the truth because yeah. everything is colored by your beliefs when you're talking about things like that in Scientology. So that's my response to that. It's unfortunate that that's what happened. I you know, I don't know if there's going to be a retrial. I somewhat suspect that there will not be. I suspect that this now is going to go the route of a civil case. And that's going to be a very different proposition. You know, you're going to see um, a lot more information tumbling out. You know, Scientology is running around trying to do PR area control now saying, well, you know, they made Scientology an issue in this case and they never should have. And you know, this is just this is just an orchestrated campaign and blah, 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 blah. When the actual orchestrated campaign of covering up what happened comes tumbling out in the civil case, they're going to be they're going to be telling a very different story. And <laughs> you have discovery in a civil case that you do not have in a criminal case. And the discovery is going to be that is going to be a circus. I could only imagine. Wow. Yeah. So um, we'll have to keep tabs on that and see how that sort of unfolds over the next couple months. Thank you so, so, so much, so much, Mike, for coming on and hanging out and having this chat with me. I am so glad that my first Scientology episode was with you. Yes. Please let everybody know where they can find you, how they can get your book and where they can follow you uh, so that we can keep up. 
Well, they can get my book anywhere. I mean, obviously, you can buy it on Amazon or you can go to Barnes & Noble or Books A Million or wherever. Uh, basically, people tend to follow me on my blog, which is mikerindersblog.org. I put a posting up there every day. Some of them are less interesting than others. And, you know, it's that's a bit of a pain in the ass keeping that going every day. But, you know, there's always something that, that needs to be said or something that I find to say. And, you know, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and, and you know, Facebook, although Facebook, I really I have a hard time trying to navigate my way through that crazy world anymore. It's just like become so complicated. And now Twitter seems to be becoming weird and, it's the new oh, you know, whatever. Uh, anyway, I'm on social media and, um, and, and on my blog and you can send me emails at my blog. I look at them every now and then. I mean, honest, I got to be honest, Roberta. People send me direct messages on, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and emails to my blog and this and that. And I have so many of them. Many times I just can't even get to read them all, let alone answer. But eventually I get around to them and I do read them. And even if, even if people don't get answers, know that I do actually read everything but it's a lot. And I don't have um, a unit like L. Ron Hubbard had to write letters on his behalf in response to his fan mail. So you just got to like hope that maybe you send me something that, that attracts my attention enough that I go, oh, God, I got to answer this. <laughs> I mean, that's what happened to me. So it works. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. Hey, look, <laughs> I also want to thank you so much for being so candid about your struggle with content creation <laughs> and answering <laughs> messages, because I feel less alone right now. <laughs> it's a real thing. I feel guilty and I feel bad about it. And but I like I can't I, I'm not going back onto a COG schedule in order to respond to emails. I just can't do it. I like. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. I feel the same way. And I also feel like our fans, there's a large overlap. They're also very understanding of like, they were in Colts. It's cool if it yeah. takes them a while to get us to get back to us. I mean, I'll get a message and Instagram will be like, oh, you have a new message. And I'll look at it. And there'll be like 25 other messages from the year that they've responded to my stories or they're sending me links to things. And my message is, oh, my God, I am so sorry I missed all of these. Like, that is always my first. So, yes, I feel less alone. Thank you. You guys know there's no schedule. If we don't answer you, message us again and maybe we'll see at that time. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Perfect. Thank you. Can you be my spokesperson. Sure. Yeah. All, exactly. all the way. And I will say, after reading your book and I sent you a message, I was like, um, I might have to make an edit here. I might need a Mike Rinder is my spirit animal shirt now because, <laughs> wow, I seriously, I related to so much of your story and Thank you so much for telling it. So being so candid today and sharing this, you are incredible, Mike. Thank you for being a, a friend. You're very welcome, Roberta. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast and my advocacy at The Real Roberta Blevins. You can find all of the links to the social accounts in our show notes. And if you just listened to that incredible story and you thought, oh my God, I have a story just like that that needs to be told, hit me up, therealrobertablevins at gmail.com. 
I would love to have you on the show to share your story and start your journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. Thank you.